And they said unto him, Sir, we would see Jesus. By your Holy Spirit, we pray so this morning. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's lovely to be back with you and to see so many new faces. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Simon Barnes, and I had the privilege of serving as interim rector here at St. Francis pre-COVID. That's probably the best way of describing it. And uh, thank you, Clint, very much indeed uh, for uh, graciously inviting me back to speak to you this morning. It's been wonderful for Lucy and I to be in Louisville since Monday, preparing for this wedding that's taking place here uh, in the sanctuary this afternoon. But it's been amazing that every day, every day that we've been here, someone has asked the same question of Lucy and myself. And sometimes they've asked it several times. In fact, there was one day when they asked it four times. It's not about how is England dealing with COVID. It's uh, not about how we're dealing with Brexit. It's not even about what do we think of the new president of the United States. No, there's this one question that every person keeps asking us. And even the chap on the hotel reception desk this morning asked me as I was going out, what do you think of Meghan and Harry? <laughs> well, I have to say the kindest answer I can give is that Meghan didn't understand what it really meant to be a member of the royal family. I mean, she understood some of the privileges, some of the advantages that came with marrying a prince of the realm. But deep down, she didn't really appreciate the ingrained understanding that so many Brits have that you will celebrate the freedom from next week, which is that sense of monarchy that sense of kinship. And there are many things that our royal family do that may seem very strange to those looking in from the outside. You have to understand the responsibilities and duties that as a member and a senior member of the royal family, you now take on. As an actress, Meghan no longer could just talk the talk, she now had to walk the walk. A lifetime of obedience, a lifetime of being in the public eye. That was made clear in one story recounted in the Oprah conversation. And I have to say it was very funny when someone asked one of our senior members of the royal family, the Countess of Wessex, about the Oprah interview, her retort was, I'm sorry, who is Oprah? <laughs> but there was a piece of that interview which I think gave it away. And that's when Meghan recounted the story of first meeting the Queen. They were going to have lunch with the Duke and Duchess of York, and word got round that the Queen was calling in to say hello. And Harry turns to Meghan and says, do you know how to curtsy? Curtsy, she said, but she's your grandmother. He said, she is my grandmother, 
but she's also the Queen of England. For them, it was natural. For Meghan, it was very unnatural. Queen Elizabeth next year will celebrate 70 years on the throne, and a four-day public holiday has been declared. They're already planning all sorts of celebrations. And if she survives to 72 years and 111 days, she will outdo Louis XIV, who in 1715 became the longest reigning monarch in the history of the world. And it's likely that Elizabeth will do it. She is universally respected in England and epitomizes a sense of unbridled duty. She has a strong sense of her calling and her divine anointing as monarch. And it's on that theme that Paul touches when we look at the second letter to Corinthians. It's very similar territory about our Christian calling, our divine anointing, and the responsibilities that come with that. But first, let's put that letter into context. The church in Judea, and particularly the church in Jerusalem, in AD 40 was suffering. There had been terrible famine, and the church was on its knees. James, Cephas, and John had gone to Paul and said, would you ask the Gentile church if they will help? Now remember, the Jews were having a hard time with the concept of Gentiles being part of God's greater kingdom. But Paul took up the mantle. He didn't necessarily want to do it, but he agreed to do it. At the end of his first letter, he writes to the Corinthians, <coughs> excuse me, he says this in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 2 to 3. On the first day of the week, let each one of you save that you may prosper, that no collection may be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send whoever you, uh, you um, approve with letters, and among those letters, your gracious gifts to Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. It is clear that the Corinthians had started out very well. That first letter, yes, they were going to give to the church in Jerusalem. They were going to do more than just talk the talk. They were going to walk the walk. But then we come to that second letter. And here in chapter 8, right from the beginning, Paul nails the problem. And he wants them to know where the problem lies, because clearly they have faltered. They've said they would do it, they committed to do it, but they haven't done it. Paul wants them to know of the grace of God that has been so evident throughout the church, and to challenge them, particularly by comparing them to the church in Macedonia. He's not doing this to shame them into giving, he wants to encourage them to truly understand God's grace. Now, the Macedonia church was small. It was heavily persecuted by the Romans, yet it was abounding in God's grace. And Paul talks about this great generosity that the Macedonian church had. 
The Corinthian church, by contrast, was fairly large. It was well established. It didn't suffer much under the Romans, and it was wealthy. Yet they were finding it very hard to give. Every time in our family we talk about grace, I'm reminded of a little ditty. Lucy, when I married her, was full of these things she'd learned as a child. And there's a wonderful one about grace. And it goes like this. Patience is a virtue. Virtue is a grace. And Grace was a little girl who didn't wash her face. <laughs> it's easy for us to understand in our heads, theologically, what grace means. But it's very hard, and it was hard for the Corinthians, and it's hard for me sometimes, to understand what it means in our hearts, spiritually. It's often said that the biggest and longest distance that a Christian has to travel is between their head and their heart. But I would context and contend that the biggest distance, as Paul explains to the Corinthians, is from justification, that understanding in our head that we are redeemed by our Savior, Jesus Christ, to justification, our transformation of people who understand that saving knowledge. Let me say that again. The biggest distance we travel as Christians as we grow and mature is from justification, understanding that we are saved, to sanctification, truly living out that gospel. Four times in the letter to the Corinthians in chapter 8, Paul refers to generosity and grace. He's underlining how it is important that the Corinthians really understand that out of Jesus' grace to us, God's grace to us, we respond. We respond fully. And that wasn't easy for Paul to do. He wasn't a natural fundraiser. No one likes talking about money, and it was no different 2,000 years ago. No one likes to talk about giving, and it was no different 2,000 years ago. And it's really hard for a rector to stand up and talk about giving because people will say, well, you know, it's self-serving. Well, I can stand up today and talk about it because I'm getting on a plane on Monday and I have no skin in the game. <laughs> for many, giving is an obligation. It's a duty. It's almost like our country club membership. And too often we give reluctantly and grudgingly. You see, we say to the Lord, here it is, Lord, take it. But metaphorically, our hands are a little closed, sometimes fully closed. closed. And if your hands are like this, there's not much use that we can do with them. But bit by bit, by his Holy Spirit, I believe that as we grow as Christians, God slowly pulls our fingers open to the point where we have open hands and open hearts. Paul encourages the Corinthians to excel in this generous undertaking. And I need to be clear, it's not just about money. This is about time, and talent as much as your treasure. But it's a process. It's a process as we grow as Christians. 
Last weekend, Lucy and I were privileged as we flew over. We went to Boston to visit a lady I call my American mother, a lady called Barbara Sears. She's 99, 11 months, and two weeks old. So she's seen a few things. Barbara was born into a very prominent Virginia family. She enjoyed a wonderful childhood. And then she fell in love and married a man from Boston. But not just any Bostonian. He, uh, Francis P. Sears III, was a Brahmin of Boston. And if you know anything about Bostonians, there are the 12 great Boston families. And so Barbara moved north to the North Shore of, of Boston to make a new life. Even though she was from a well-educated, prominent family in Virginia, the Brahmins did not take well to her. It wasn't uncommon for the phone to ring, for a party or dinner invitation, but that only included her husband and not her. Her mother-in-law was particularly unkind, and she would make it a purpose of insisting that her son call in on the way back from work just to have a quick chat every evening. And three hours later, he would arrive rather too well-oiled at the family home. This got really under Barbara's skin to the point where it became almost overwhelming. She suffered from asthma and had a massive asthma attack and was rushed to hospital. And she did what many of us do. She made a bargain with God. She said, God, if you save me, I'll become a Christian. She didn't really know, understand what it meant. She was an Episcopalian, she'd gone to church, but she made that bargain. Ten minutes later, the asthma was gone. Well, Barbara was true to her word. She went to church. She attended Bible study. She got it in her head. But it didn't really affect her as a person very much. But she went to a Bible study with a dear friend she had known since childhood, another member of uh, one of these elite families, but not a Brahmin nonetheless, and she began to grow as a Christian. And then her dear friend got cancer and very suddenly died. So Barbara, along with her Christian housekeeper, went to this friend Helen's funeral. And it was a normal funeral, nothing spectacular. The gospel was preached. It was great, a celebration of someone's life. But on the way home, Phyllis, that's Barbara's Christian housekeeper, turned to Barbara and said, Mrs. Sears, wasn't that extraordinary? Barbara said, well, what was extraordinary? She said, didn't you see Helen dancing with Jesus so beautifully down the aisle? And wasn't it extraordinary about how well she danced? But she danced without any shoes on, which is most extraordinary. Now, what Phyllis, the housekeeper, didn't know is that Barbara had known Helen since they were teenagers. And Helen was known to be one of society's best dancers. But she danced without shoes on. And in that moment, in that moment, the Holy Spirit nudged Barbara from that point of being someone who understood it in her head to someone who understood it in her heart. And she used her privileged position to become the most amazing witness for her Christian faith. And to this day, even in her frailty, 
it was wonderful to share communion with her and to pray with her. You see, when Christians give, grace is very evident. Grace is very evident. That's what Christian giving is all about. It's an outpouring of our grace. And I can say to you that I believe that God, by his Holy Spirit, is doing extraordinary things here at St. Francis. I am thrilled to be back and thrilled to see a church that's growing and vibrant. But we all need to play a part. I can play the part by praying for you each week. It may be thousands of miles away, but you are in my prayers. But you need to think about how you're going to give to make that grace is very evident in your life. There's a need as the church begins to recover for people to volunteer. And Clint will tell you about all the things that are needed. People to volunteer on the the front desk, people to help with the ushers, whatever it might be, a way to give your time. You're a very talented group. You've got amazing skills. One of the great privileges of being here as your interim rector is there were people who were willing to use their gifts in all sorts of ways. Accountants, lawyers, people who were creative with music and flowers. You all have gifts. Use your talent. And ultimately, your tithe. I can't look here without seeing Mr. Deeroff to know that I would be getting a score from him if I didn't say that we need to absolutely use what we have for God. You see, we are called as a church not just to talk the talk, but to walk the walk. Every service, we have those same offertory sentences. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God. My hope and prayer for you, my friends, today is that you will know it in your head and you'll know it in your heart. That you will talk the talk and walk the walk. Amen.